So it's so wonderful to be back with all of you. As much as I love to go to Israel and I love to do momentum and I love to travel to new places, but I missed all of you and it is wonderful to be back together. Um, today we are going to be studying in the memory of two people who passed away suddenly here in Cleveland. Um, one of them was an 80-year-old grandmother, my cousin's mother-in-law, and her name was Mona Hebel. Her Hebrew name is Esther Bat Moshe. Um, and one of them was unfortunately a two-year-old little boy who tragically uh, died in his sleep. And his name was Aki is Akiva Ben David Menachem Mendel. So our Torah study today should be in their memory and God willing should uplift their soul in the next world and infuse them with Torah. Okay. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Avril. Hi, Tammy. It's great to see everybody back. All right. So today we are going to be, oh, want to tell you guys something else. Um, as you know, this class is recorded and I always post the recording on our chat. The recording also goes to two other places. First of all, it goes on my app. There's an app called Ruchi Koval. So feel free to download it. Uh, and also, um, I also put it on my podcast. So if you look up Ruchi Koval, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find two podcasts. One is through Momentum and it's called The Book of Life. And one of them, which by the way, we're in the process of repackaging and relaunching. So look out for that. And one of them is called Soul Construction with Ruchi Koval. And that's this class. So if you're a podcast person and you miss a class or you want to re-listen to a class and you prefer to listen to the recording that way, I just wanted you to know you have options. So how great is that? All right. So we are up to chapter 17. We're doing Malbim on Mishle, the book of Proverbs. And wait, hold on. There's something. My video is being mirrored and that makes me weirded out. So let me fix that. I mean, it's not being mirrored. Okay. There, I feel much happier now. Okay, um, so we are on the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, and we are up to verse two. And, you know, for those of you who are new or just to give you a recap, um, this is a book of truisms about life, about character, about our attitudes towards life, towards other people, towards personal growth, towards our job to kind of make ourselves better people and do better in this world as humans, as Jews, um, and in whatever other roles that we that we serve in this world. Okay. Hello, Heather. Good to see you. All right. So chapter 17, verse 2. Here we go. Eved maskil yimshol bevein mevish. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. And will share in the inheritance among the brothers. All right, so this verse is a metaphor. And the metaphor is about a household, right? Where you have, so to speak, you know, the son who's the heir of the, you know, estate. And then the estate also has staff. So, right, I want an estate with staff. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't have I don't have a staff, <laughs> but we have the um servant, right, who is not an heir of the estate. He's merely an employee thereof. And what we're saying here is that the son who acts shamefully is going to be ruled over by the servant who acts wisely. So what we're trying to say here is that how successful you are in life has a lot less to do with your birth or your station that you were born into and a lot more to do with how you behave yourself, okay? And then the end of the verse is, 
that this servant will share in the inheritance among his brothers. What that means is that this servant will come out ahead, ahead of the son who is acting shamefully. Okay. So, you know, as with all the other metaphors in this book, the metaphor itself is true, of course, but then there's a deeper truth that's being conveyed here. Okay. And the deeper truth here is about wealth and power and about the value of hard work. I was just talking to one of my kids yesterday who has, who was working a low paying job this summer. And, you know, my, my kid was telling me, you know, well, listen, I'm still looking for, you know, better jobs. And I said, let me tell you something. Never be ashamed of an honest day's work. Even a job that you're overqualified for. I mean, I'm a Jewish mother. Of course, I think my kid is overqualified, but that's like goes with the state, goes with the, you know, territory. Um, but, and, and, you know, I also said, I said, listen, every job teaches you something. You know, especially if you're overqualified for a job that you're working for, right? And you get to see how people who are less qualified or able or educated, what they do for a living and how it feels to be in that position, you're going to learn a lot and you're going to take that wisdom and knowledge with you wherever you go. And that is far more powerful than having been born into a privileged family where a person doesn't have to work hard. Because the value of hard work and the lessons of hard work, they last a lifetime, right? So our commentary, page 178, for those of you who are following along in the book, wealth and power are not hereditary. They go to the ambitious and hardworking, right? It's, it's not that hard to squander a trust fund. If you use a little creativity and ingenuity, you can make it disappear, right? It's a person who has wisdom and caution who's going to preserve the family money, so to speak, and grow the family money. I was I was reading an article recently on um, financial habits, and it was saying that, you know, a lot of times when a person gets a better job or they find themselves doing better financially than before, often the first thing they do is they upgrade their standard of living, right? They buy something that they couldn't buy before, or they renovate something that they couldn't renovate before. But what this article was saying is, when a person first starts, you know, making more money than before, really the first thing they should do is put put the extra away for savings, right? And then once they have that cushion and that financial security of the savings, then, you know, it's okay to, you know, raise your standard of living somewhat, but if you're if you if you started making this much more money and now you're going to raise your standard of living to here, you're not going to have any more money than before. You're going to have more things right? And, and those things are also likely temporary, right? But you're not going to have more money than before. So, you know, my kids sometimes ask me when they see, you know, certain people who are wealthy acting in very frugal ways, you know, well, why, why do they have to be so frugal? They have plenty of money. I'm like, why do you think they have plenty of money? Because they're <laughs> very frugal, <laughs> you know? So it's this sort of mentality that we have in America uh, well, first of all, to spend money we don't have, um, but also that as soon as we have it, we're entitled to spend it, right? So this is talking about wealth and power are not hereditary. They go to the ambitious and hardworking. Eventually, therefore, an intelligent and industrial slave or servant, okay, we don't have slaves. <laughs> so let's say we don't even like the word servant, right? We, but let's say a person is working in someone else's home will rise above a spoiled, lazy son. 
You know, we have um, a woman who comes to my house on Fridays to help me clean for Shabbat. And um, her name is Carla, and she is really an exceptional human being, besides the fact that she always finds every single thing in my house that's lost. So we love her. We love her very much. She's, she's really a, a very good person. I was asking her one time, she's from Guatemala, and I was asking her, I had read the novel American Dirt. Has anybody here read that book? super powerful book. Um, it's about, you know, immigrants from Central and South America coming to America. Anyway, I asked her, Carla, I, and I was kind of embarrassed. Like I never thought to ask her this question. I said, how did you get to America from Guatemala? And she starts telling me in her broken English, how they walked for like weeks and weeks and weeks through the desert and how dangerous it was and how scary it was, you know, and I'm thinking this woman came to America and she works really, really hard. She cleans people's homes and she saved up and she bought herself a car and she's raising two kids on her own. And I'm like, this is incredible. This is an unbelievable work ethic that everybody can learn from, you know? And I tell my kids, I'm like, look how she used to come to our house. She used to take two buses and a train and now she saved up and she has her own car, right? So this is a person who is, I don't know, we don't use the word servant anymore, but she's somebody who works in my home, right? who is rising above because of the quality of industriousness and hard work. Symbolically, this means that a serious, intelligent proselyte, so a proselyte is a convert, a newcomer to Judaism, right? Let's say somebody decides they want to become Jewish and they work really, really hard and they learn everything they have to learn and they're really committed and they decide to take on the commandments and to really keep the mitzvot, right? A person like that can surpass a born Jew in their commitment and in their personal growth, right? So the metaphor is about the person, you know, working in your home. The meaning of the metaphor is about a newcomer to Judaism. A serious, intelligent proselyte will succeed more than a Jew born into the fold, right? Very often, you know, we'll have a situation like this where uh, a Jewish person is married to a non-Jewish person and the non-Jewish person wants to convert. I will say, okay, listen, if you want to convert, you know, here's what you have to do. You have to accept all the mitzvot. And they'll say, well, but my spouse doesn't keep all the mitzvot. And we'll be like, right, but they're born Jewish. They were grandfathered in, literally, right? They, and I'm not saying they don't have to keep all the mitzvot. Obviously, I'm a fan of mitzvot. I think we should keep them. <laughs> but if a person who's born Jewish doesn't, doesn't keep mitzvot, it doesn't make them not Jewish. But for somebody coming into the fold, right? It's like somebody who wants to become an American citizen. You have to demonstrate that you're loyal to America. You have to demonstrate that you're knowledgeable about America. If me, who was born in New York, would take the test for a, an American citizen, I would probably fail. I probably don't know half the things on those you know, exams that they have to take. But okay, I'm a born American citizen. I don't have to. But when you're coming from the outside in, you have to prove yourself. You have to Prove your commitment and your so if the born Jew, right, the native son is not committed to Judaism, right, then a newcomer can certain, I'm not going to say easily because it's hard, but the newcomer can surpass the born Jew in their mitzvah commitment and in their connection to Torah observance, right, by virtue of hard work and intelligence. In fact, some of our greatest leaders were converts to Judaism. Right. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. 
Rabbi Akiva. Thank you, Sydney. Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a convert to Judaism. He was very, very ignorant. And look how he became one of the greatest sages, leaders, and teachers of our nation. Right? Moses' father. What's that? Is it Moses' father-in-law? Right. That's true, too. Yisro. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Heather. So this final sentence that the commentary says on this verse, I think, is extremely powerful. Not birth, but personal effort ultimately counts. You know, and I think I think sometimes when a person is born into a certain station or family and everybody knows us or we're really established in the community or we have connections or we have wealth or we're, you know, we're the super Jewish family that volunteers and everything and federation and whatever. That's great. The family that you are born into can certainly give you a leg up, but ultimately it is not birth, but personal effort that ultimately counts. And it's interesting when we talk about being born into a specific family, you know, I always like to talk about a ladder of growth that each person comes into this world to climb their own personal ladder of growth. And the mistake that we make is that we think that everybody is on the same ladder. So we look around at other people and we're like, well, they do this and they do that and they have this and they have that and they're further up the ladder than me or I'm further up the ladder than them or they're climbing faster. But what we don't understand is, first of all, we're not all on the same ladder. Everybody's on their own ladder. I'm not going to be judged on anybody else's journey. I'm not going to be judged on anybody else's ladder. The other thing we don't understand is that not everybody started out on rung one. If I am born into a prestigious family, a wealthy family, a very Jewishly knowledgeable family, right? Then it's like I came into this world on rung five, right? So God is not going to look at me and say, wow, you're on rung five. Go you. Yeah, because I put you on rung five. That's That was your starting point. And nobody knows your starting point. Nobody else knows your starting point. All, oh, and then also, right? Some people's rungs are further apart. Some people are climbing up with only one leg. Some people have a weak heart. So the only thing that matters is how, right here, not birth, but personal effort. How hard am I working to ascend my ladder. It's not about anybody else's ladder, how high, how, how low, how much, how fast. None of that is relevant. It's only about me. It's only about my journey. And it's only about how hard am I trying. That's how we will be judged. And that's how we should assess our own, you know, status, or I don't like the word status. That, that's how we assess our own success of growth. Okay, so welcome, Aaron. Welcome, Sheila. So I'd like to open it up for any questions on this verse 17 too. Any thoughts or comments? Okie doke. Moving on, we're gonna do three and four together. So here is three. 
Matsrif Kesef Fikur Lizahav. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold. But God tries the hearts. Okay, so here we have another metaphor, right, about silver and gold. And there's a contrast here between silver and gold. What we're saying is that silver needs a refining pot, but gold needs a furnace. A furnace is much hotter than a refining pot, right? So what is the difference here? What is the metaphor between silver and gold? And then the final statement is, God tries the hearts. Now the word, the word tries, the way it is in Hebrew is which means to test, right? So it's like a trial, like God is testing our heart, that God really, what does God really care about? God cares about what's in our heart. Okay. So this kind of refinement that we're talking about with silver and gold is a metaphor about purging our mistakes. It's a metaphor about repentance and renewal and about taking the imperfections and the impurities that are within our hearts and figuring out a way to effectively get rid of them. Now, this is appropriate for the time of year uh, that we are not in right now, but approaching in about a month, which is the month of Elul. In, in a month, we are, yesterday was Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the month of Av, and, to, and in a month we begin Elul, which is the month leading into the high holidays, right? So it's never too early to start thinking about, I mean, clearly, you know, fixing our mistakes is something we should be thinking about all year long, right? But certainly as the summer continues and we're starting to head into fall, we're talking about thinking about the high holidays. So that's three. Here's four. Meira makshiv al svat aven. An evildoer pays attention to wicked lips. Sheker mezin al havot. A liar gives ear to an injurious tongue. So what does this mean? A an evildoer, a bad person will pay attention to wicked lips, right? That means that when other people speak badly, he's listening, right? Look, there are people who speak badly all the time. If nobody's listening to them, eventually they're going to stop talking. But if a wicked person is listening, they're like, oh, really? I want to hear that negative talk. I want to hear that, you know, insult or that kind of picking apart another person. Then you have a rapt audience. Then you're going to have someone to talk to right? And a liar gives ear to an injurious tongue. That means that a person who's used to lying is also going to be interested in hearing similar talk. So what you are interested in listening to reveals a part of your character. Who are you, right? There are people who say, I, I, you know what, I'd rather not talk about this, or I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this conversation, right? Or is it okay with you if we change the subject? This kind of conversation bothers me then it's a perfectly legitimate thing to say, you know, and sometimes we feel so intimidated or so inhibited, like what? No, I can't say that. Try it. Maybe it feels good to put down a boundary about the things you're interested in listening to, you know, sometimes I think about this. I must've mentioned this in the past because this is like a bit of a pet peeve of mine, but you know, sometimes you're walking down the street or you're driving and you hear this car blasting the most vulgar music at the loudest decibel possible. And I always think to myself, like, what a fascinating mindset that a person would think to themselves, the whole entire universe wants to hear this music. I want to hear it. So everybody wants to hear it. And I'm like, it's such a, it's such an infringement on my personal space. 
I don't want to listen to these words and I don't want to listen to this music. And you are giving me no right to establish my boundaries. But if you're in a conversation with someone and they start saying things that make you uncomfortable, you are 100% entitled to set a boundary and to say, I'm sorry, I'm not so comfortable. You don't have to say to them, you're being rude. I think that's mean. That's not true. You don't have to accuse the other person of anything, but you can say, I am not comfortable with this conversation. Finished end of story. You are allowed to do that. So this verse talks about the person who doesn't do that because they like it. They want to hear those things. Well, that reveals something about their character. Robin. No, I was just, I, we've talked about this, I think, before where, you know, I think it's so, like you just sort of clarified. I mean, you have to be very careful how you say it because it can also come across a bit, um, not judgmental, but... Um, sort of holier than thou, you know, like that you are, and, and maybe that is kind of the idea that you're working at a different level and that's okay. Um, I have found myself, I've sort of trained myself to check out a little bit and to the point where my husband has said to me sometimes, are you okay? Cause I'm really <laughs> kind of staring into space, you know, but I have been a little afraid to say that at times I've wanted to, but I don't always feel like I have the um, right, I guess to do that. So it's kind of interesting to hear you kind of clarify that you do have the right because it, it is an infringement, right? When um, I've been in situations where it's so horrible, like some of the things that are being discussed and I just don't know where really to put myself. So, but I do feel like I can't say it. If at all possible, you can absent yourself from the situation, but there are mm -hmm. times where that's not possible. Right. You know, and the same way that you're allowed to decline a food, right? Let's say you're at an event or a party or a dinner and someone says, hey, would you like to have some whatever? You're allowed to say, no, thank you. And you don't have to give a reason or an excuse. I don't like it. I'm allergic. It's not kosher. It smells weird. Whatever. It doesn't matter what the reason is, right? You're, you're perfectly within your bounds of human dignity to say, no, thank you. So too, you're not ingesting food but you're ingesting content into your brain and your heart, right? And there's nothing wrong. It, it, as long as it's coming from a humble place, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I'm, I'm just a little uncomfortable. You know, would it be okay if we change the subject? A basically good person will get over it, right? And a basically annoyed person will get annoyed, but that's okay. It's also well within their rights to get annoyed. They're allowed to be annoyed, right? I was going to say... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Laura. Um, this is probably not the right thing to do, but what I'm definitely uncomfortable, you know, in those situations too. And it's probably not, it's probably, you know, continuing the conversation, but sometimes my gut, my like knee jerk reaction is just to kind of point out, like give them the benefit of the doubt or point out why whatever they're saying might not be true, but then that's probably engaging in the conversation. That's probably not good either but well no I think that look differently you know at a different viewpoint yeah I think that's another valid response is that we can offer a more positive light on the conversation mm -hmm. or on the mm -hmm. subject right so basically what we're doing is you know instead of saying oh I'd rather not hear that music we're saying hey can I offer you a different track to listen to right I don't think I don't think one is better than another I think both are valid I've exceeded my quota of sinning for the week. <laughs> I mean, that's very funny. 
if anybody tries that at home, please do report back. I would love to know how that goes over. That's so funny. Sometimes I just say whatever they're talking about. I'll just say like, oh, I've done that before. Like, do you know what I mean? So if someone's talking bad about somebody else because of something they did, whether I've done it or not, sometimes I'll just go, oh, I've done that before. And then like it shuts everything down because people are like. That's another great suggestion. (laughs) That's another great. Either way, you know, and some people are saying leave the room. That's fine. Either way, what you're saying is I'm uncomfortable with the tenor of the conversation. So I'm either going to try to end it, leave it, change it. And that's well within your, what you do not have to do is feel victimized to sit there and keep listening to it. You don't have to do that. Okay. I think your husband is the, uh, is the king of this and he taught us to change the subject. So, and you taught us too, of course. So, you know, like, how about those Browns? Don't they like, uh, aren't they terrible? Or what about the weather or, and you can do it. And everybody knows it's like, it makes light of it in a way, because what you don't want to do is like come down harshly on a person, obviously, but if you're changing a subject and it's so obvious that like you're, you've made a pivot from, whatever they're talking about to like your flowers, right? They know that like, you're yeah. not part of that discussion. So that I find that's the easiest, yeah. especially that's at the shop. You can be like, Hey, what about that uh, movie? And they're like, what? <laughs> and then the person gets the opinion. He <laughs> is a professional subject changer. And yeah. I have to say like, I feel like half the time my, my kids are onto him and half the time they're actually not. It's surprisingly easy to distract people in a conversation. It's fascinating talk, fascinating commentary on human nature, how distractible we are, you know, but even when they're on to him, they're like, oh, there he goes changing the subject. Ha ha ha. And then they go with it. Okay. Let's talk about the new topic now. Right. Okay. So let's go to the commentary three and four. So just, just to quickly go back, three was talking about refining the gold and silver and how God tests our hearts. Four was talking about how an evil person listens to wicked lips and a liar listens to an injurious tongue. Okay, here's the commentary. The impurities of silver are removed in a refining pot while gold in which impurities are more ingrained requires the full blast of a furnace. Okay, so I learned something new that I didn't know about silver and gold. (laughs) Apparently, the impurities of uh, gold are more ingrained than the impurities of silver. Wow, who knew? Okay, so therefore, um, it needs more of a treatment, right, so to speak. Thus, heaven cleans the heart of man, each with the force of purging that it requires. Now, this is very interesting because this is true of kosher. If a person wants to make something kosher, right, there's a law in the rules of kashrut that goes like this, kibbo'o kachpoto. The way that it absorbed the non-kosher is the way it has to release the non-kosher. So for example, if it was in a pot, so you kosher it in a pot. If it was with fire, you have to kosher it with fire, right? It's almost like this measure for measure kind of dynamic, which we talk about sometimes that this is how God runs the world, measure for measure, right? The, the Egyptians spilled the blood of Jewish babies. Therefore, the first plague was blood, right? There is this measure for measure where God brings punishment to the world in order to draw people's attention to where did they go wrong. 
So too, this is true of like a refinement when we're refining ourselves, right? It has to be done in the same manner that the mistake was made. Thus, heaven cleans the, cleanses the hearts of men, each with the force of purging that it requires. So if it's a very minor mistake, the fix will be minor. If it's a major mistake, the fix will be major, right? Some sins, I don't like the word sins. I'm going to use the word mistakes, okay? Some mistakes are easily removed, being obvious matters of temptation and desire that brings a simple confusion between good and evil, right? So this is talking about mistakes that are of the nature of temptation. So let's let's use negative speech because that's what we've been talking about as an example, right? Let's say I'm in a conversation or, okay, this just happened this morning. So I'll give you this example. My daughter and I went out for a walk this morning and we passed by a neighbor and the neighbor said something that I thought was very funny, not funny as in amusing, but funny as in odd. So we left the, uh, you know, we, we, we passed by her driveway and we kept walking and I was very, 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 very tempted to say something to my daughter. Like, well, that was, you know, well, that was funny, but I didn't, I held my tongue. I'm very proud of myself, by the way. Um, cause that was hard. Right. But that would be considered a mistake of temptation. It's not that I don't know that you're not supposed to make negative comments about other people. It's not that I don't believe that you're not supposed to make negative comments about other people. It's not that I don't believe that it matters what you say about other people. I do know and I do believe, but guess what? Sometimes I'm sorely tempted, right? And I have to confess, I don't always pass the test. You know, I will say that my mistakes have gotten better over time. There's been an improvement in the quality of my mistakes, right? The mistakes become more refined as you grow in your muster journey. But no, I don't always pass the test. Okay, but that's a mistake of temptation. You know, it's like, I, I've, I've brought this up many times, but have you guys seen the, the the video of these like psychology tests that they do with little kids where they'll give them like, I think it's called the marshmallow test right? They'll give them a marshmallow or I've seen it done with a donut and the kid is sitting there like, if you don't eat it, I'll give you another one. And they have to sit there for like 10 minutes or something. And the kids are being videoed. So you see the kid, there's the donut or the marshmallow or whatever it is on the plate. And you see this kid and they're like squirming and they're looking at it and they're picking it up and they're smelling it. And then, you know, and then some kids, oh my gosh, they literally can't control themselves. It's like, <laughs> you know, they eat it. Right. You get it. You get it. When you know, you know, something does something wrong. They just they were just overwhelmed with temptation. They kind of, I don't want to say couldn't help it, but they didn't help it. That's so understandable. Like God really understands, you know, when you kind of just have a lapse like that. That was because of temptation or desire. That's like silver. That doesn't need that. That doesn't need that much purging. In fact, usually a person who falls into a mistake like that, they already feel regret and guilt by themselves, right? They don't need to be guilted out by God. You know, I, I always used to say like when. My kids used to get to say that it might happen that one of my kids might get in trouble in school. And then they would come home and they would like immediately burst into tears and say, oh my gosh, I did so nice Okay, I don't need to do anything else. I don't need to punish them. I don't need to lecture. They already feel the regret. That's what you want, right? So a lot of times when people have this lapse in their temptation or the desire, they already feel bad. They're like, oh gosh, I really shouldn't have said that. Oh gosh, I really shouldn't have done that. Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't on my A game today, right? So like the fix is so subtle. It's, you're like almost there. You're already almost there. 
Other mistakes require stronger fires of purification as they involve distortion of the conception of truth and falsehood. So this is when a person says, oh no, I'm glad I did it. It was the principle of the matter. And you know what? I would do it again. Oh yes, I would. And let me tell you why. No, there is no, no. Are you kidding? I'm not apologizing. I'm not wrong. Ooh, that's going to be a bigger fix because there's no regret and there's no remorse, right? You're kind of far away from repairing that mistake. So heaven needs to sort of help you a little bit more in that area. The first kind of, well, it says sinner, but I'm going to say mistake maker. <laughs> the first kind of mistake maker is described as paying attention to wicked lips, right? Whenever we have these metaphors in this book, they always are intentional lips, right? The first part of the verse four talks about lips and the second part talks about your tongue. Lips, right, are much more external. Listen to this. Lips connote the superficial, the superficial expression of evil, right? It's external. The first kind of sinner, the first kind of mistake maker. Oh, hi, Naomi. Good to see you here. Hi, Yael. I missed you guys. Um, so the first kind of mistake maker, it's like it's an external blemish, right? It's sort of like you, you, you get a little, you know, like a mosquito bite, like on the surface of your skin. It's a surface issue. It doesn't go deep. Okay. The second kind of mistake maker gives ear to an injurious tongue, symbolizing the faculty of reason and understanding. So your tongue is inside of your mouth. This, right? When you look at a person, you see their lips, you don't see their tongue. That's a more internal issue. It's a more systemic issue, right? Their, their like value system is messed up in their head in this area. This, if corrupted, radically subverts our whole perception of reality. This is where you get into situations where people do not talk to each other for prolonged lengths of time because each person is so convinced their mentality, their philosophy, right, is so messed up that they think they're doing a mitzvah by creating a rift in the family. And when a person gets self-righteous in this way, it's much harder to come back from. Mistakes of wrong belief are therefore more destructive than mere wrong acts. So the question is, when we make a mistake, we have to ask ourselves, right? And it's, it's going to be hard for us to assess ourselves, but is this a mistake of behavior or is this a mistake of mentality? Now, if it's a mistake of mentality, a person is going to be hard pressed to be self-aware about that because they think that they're doing something right. Excuse me. Excuse me. So sometimes we're going to have to be like, we always say in muster, we have to be open to the feedback of others. If we're getting, you know, messages from externally that maybe what we're doing is not right. We have to be willing to rethink our mindset. You know, maybe I thought that this was the right thing to do, but maybe I need to be willing to reconsider whether it really is the right thing to do. 
um, as they involve elements of heresy and need more intensive cleansing. So when it's a mentality issue, a mindset issue, it's a principle issue, right? It's going to be much harder for a person to revise that and to come back from that and to repair that. So we're talking here basically about these two types of mistakes that people make, mistakes that are surface, I just got tempted, I really know what's right and wrong, and mistakes that are much more systemic, much more ingrained, much more internal, where, no, I believe that this is the right thing to do. This is my philosophy. This is my mentality. This is my lifestyle. This is who I am. And that's when you're getting into a lot more trouble. Okay, thoughts, comments on three and four. The ingrained, the person who has the ingrained, is it, it's, you know, when you're, when this group is, is more aware, obviously, you know, we're all learning and studying and kind of examining ourselves in those um, situations. Is it best just to stay silent? Like why even start with, you know, if you're debating with somebody when it comes to their morality principles or your morality and principles, you know, it's a difficult conversation to it's not worth the time to try to fix I don't know I'm not sure that makes yeah sense. no that's a good question I think it really depends it's very very case specific right and you know like like with everything else there's a there's a principle in the Talmud just as there is a mitzvah I think Hillel said this just as it is a mitzvah to say what can be heard it is a mitzvah to not say what cannot be heard so you really have to ask yourself, is this person capable of hearing what I'm going to say? And when I, when I sort of have a general sense that maybe um, the other person might be open to hearing my perspective, I usually like to ask it like this. Can I offer you another way to look at that? Mm -hmm. I'm asking permission, right? To share an opposing view. And, you know, if it's somebody who's kind of you know, possibly somewhat growth oriented, but they just happen to be making a mistake in this area, then they'll probably humbly say yes. You know, and then I could say, okay, so here's another way to look at it. Maybe X, Y, and Z, you know, just think about it, right? So I'm not coming down hard. I'm not, you know, forcing my opinion on another person. I'm just offering them an alternate perspective. Some people might say, no, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> and then you have to let it go, right? Um, Judaism doesn't need lawyers. I mean, Judaism has plenty of lawyers, but Judaism doesn't need a lawyer, right? We don't have to be the advocate of Jewish values to everybody. But if somebody is open, then we do have a responsibility to help open another person's eyes to a more productive way of looking at things. Leslie. Um, I, I wrote down that wording because I just had something similar yesterday with a friend and she was looking at something so negative. And what, what I just automatically said was that's real interesting, Susan, because I was thinking, and then I gently said what I was thinking, but I kind of, I don't, I don't know the timing of this. And just by me saying I was thinking I think you did that beautifully. I think it was gentle. Yeah. Okay. I think it was gentle. I think it was humble. I mean, how did she receive it? 
she yeah i mean she thought but what she said was that's interesting to her because she didn't look at it that way and i'm like hey that's why it's so cool to have these conversations with people because i think it does help it helps like me for me to be able to like calm down instead of saying are you kidding why would you think that right um so i've learned a lot here and I feel that I can kind of pass it on in different ways. So thank you all. Yeah, that's beautiful. But I, I I love the way you did that. I think you did it very gently and respectfully and humbly. You know, good for you. Okay, any other thoughts on this teaching? Robin. You know, I've, I've probably said this to you before. I'll, I think it bears repeating. I did get cut off. So I'm sorry if you already talked about this, but I do find that that one thing I've heard you say that before, can I offer you another way to look at this to be one of the most, it diffuses almost any sort of when things feel very heated. It really, it, it's just this acknowledgement that the person has the say, I think, in what the conversation, where it's going and it's a boundary. And are you willing to kind of be open to that? I, I have used that several times and thank you. That's a really been a good one. Thank you. You know, it's so interesting as you were just making your comment, I thought about how it's the same thing that we were saying in the beginning, that you have a right to set a boundary in a conversation and say, I am, or am not, you know, comfortable with the tone of this conversation. So too, when we, when we offer our opinion gently, we're respecting another person's boundary, right? And we're not shoving our opinion in their face, you know? So uh, this is why I do like to ask permission and, and that also positions them to be in, in a state of readiness. You know, the same way I was one time reading in a book about, it was actually a business book about employee employees and employers. And it was saying that when an employer needs to talk to an employee about something, they should say to them, is this a good time for us to talk about X? Right. And, and the same things with parents and children. If I have to talk to my child about something that I feel they're doing wrong or, you know, something that they're not really going to love talking about, but that nevertheless needs to be said. Right. That we can say, hey, is this a good time for us to talk about X? And that, yes, even though you're in the greater position of power, you're, you're the boss, you're the parent. Supposedly, you can you could say whatever you want, whenever you want it. But isn't it so much better to invite their buy in to have this conversation? Right. So that they're positioned and ready and willing and listening. So you get the best possible reception from that conversation. So it's the same thing. You know, we're saying you're allowed to insert a boundary and also let's respect the boundaries of others and not just shove our opinions in their faces without permission. Okay, and any final thoughts before we close? Um, about the previous concept about um, this, the person who's tempted, they know right from wrong and they regret it versus a principal issue. I think, I think I've mentioned this before, but I think that distinction is um, sometimes difficult in the moment because you know, I've, I've often said I can like have in my imagination the person that I want to be and how that person acts and how that person would respond and the amount of self-control that that ideal version of myself would exercise. But sometimes things start to 
seem like they're encroaching on a principle that matters to me too, that that person that I would want to be would like maybe not, you know, get pushed around by somebody or wouldn't allow somebody to push someone else around and, you know, that sort of thing. And then I'm in conflict with, you know, this is the, which would, they're both, they're both uh, strong principles to and I want to be both, you know, which is this is are, are they crossing a line that I shouldn't, I should assert a boundary, either about myself or about someone else? Or is there some other principle? So I think there are, it sometimes can be trickier. than it's. It is, it actually is very tricky. And I find that the biggest dilemmas that I have are where two values that I hold dear clash with each other, right? Usually it's truth and peace. I want to say the truth, but I want to have peace. So am I dishonest or am I ruffling feathers? Both of those values are very, very important to me. That's that's where the real dilemmas are, right? It's not between a value and living against my values. Usually the real dilemmas that we have are between two values that are both important to us. It's important for me to get along with my family members. Also, I need my mental health. Oh, now what do I do, right? So it's not easy. This stuff is not easy. On that note, <laughs> it's not easy, but it's very worth it. Okay, there we go. All right, everybody. Great to see you back again. Have a wonderful, beautiful day. And God willing, we will be back here next week. Oh, actually, that's not true. Next week is Tisha B'Av. So um, hold on. Let me just take a quick look at my calendar. Yes, next week is Tisha B'Av. We will not be learning. It's actually a person is not supposed to engage in Torah study on Tisha B'Av because Tisha B'Av is an, a day of mourning and Torah study gives us joy. Very interesting. So for those of you who are, you know, having withdrawal from our classes, you could definitely chime in on Tuesday. We have a virtual class on Tuesday at nine. If you want to just pop in for a one-off, you know, because we're not having class, you're more than welcome to do so. You can just message me and I'll send you the info. Okay. Have a beautiful day, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Rusty. Thank you, Rookie. Have a great Thank week. You.